This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The election of Donald Trump compelled a Denver cartoonist who had given up on political commentary to reach for his pen. Ed Stein was editorial cartoonist for the Rocky Mountain News until it folded in 2009. He says Trump's presidency, quote, forced him back into political cartooning. And to be clear, he's not a fan of the new administration. We wanted to find out what it's like to be a political cartoonist in this particularly polarized era. Stein joins me along with cartoonist Paul Snover, who lives in Loma, west of Grand Junction. He made national headlines in 2015 for his billboard depicting Trump slaying a liberal dragon. And the dragon had words on its belly like PC, media and Muslim. Gentlemen, it's nice to have you both on the program. And uh, Paul, earlier this year, you drew a cartoon as well of the Statue of Liberty with a gag over her mouth and the thought bubble, dare I ponder what's next? Uh, And I bring it up because it appears to show that you are critical, too, of the current administration. I wonder how you see your role as a cartoonist, Paul. Uh, Thank you, Ryan. Uh, It's very interesting. uh, Let's go back to the Trump uh, Dragon Slayer one with the the names and stuff on it. That particular uh, image was done up for a friend of mine. He has very uh, outspoken viewpoints on uh, on politics, and he asked me to produce that for him. Those are his words. Uh, I was able to just put it in cartoon form for him. Hmm. The uh, the Statue of Liberty is more of my own uh, viewpoint on society and the direction of government. I'm. I'm not a fan of Trump. I'm, I'm, uh, I used to be a registered uh, Republican for probably 30 years, but I was on the, um, what would you call it, revolutionary side of that, trying to pull them in a different direction. Didn't work, so I got out of there. I became a libertarian for a year. Didn't enjoy that. Got out of there, and now I'm uh, uh, unaffiliated. So um, my views uh, personally are more geared towards... Um, uh, I guess, revolutionary thought on, on how government in general and society in general is moving. It's interesting that you did the the cartoon that in a way got you catapulted into the national spotlight for someone else. Is that common for a cartoonist uh, to sort of pick up that, that kind of work and illustrate others' opinions? Yeah, in my viewpoint, well, it happened to me. I, I, I can't speak for others. Yeah. Um, uh, gosh, I, I don't know how to reply to that because, uh, viewing myself as a revolutionary, I, I did paintings back in my college days of, uh, uh, the farms and the, the decline of the dairy industry here on the Western slope and, and my reaction to that. So a lot of my work was reactionary. Um, you know, people see, the work that I can do, and then they request uh, my skills to present their views, yeah. which may or may not uh, coincide with some of mine. Uh, so, Ed, several I, of, of your recent cartoons focus on health care. One, right. one is described as the Republican health care plan explained in two simple drawings. Right. And the first illustration <laughs> is Monopoly money with more for me written across the top. And under the image, it says rich people get richer. And then the, the second image is of a tombstone and says poor people die. What about the election of Trump made you feel like you had to get back into political cartooning? 
I, I, it just forced me back into it. I, you know, like a, like a lot of people I know who were just appalled by, um, by Trump's election and, and really frustrated by, you know, what, what started happening almost immediately after, uh, you know, after he was elected. Um, I, I think for me, it was just, it was either not sleep at night worrying and, and, going crazy or actually doing something about it. How did you choose healthcare, for instance? I mean, when you look at the news, how do you choose a topic and decide that it's right for a cartoon? Well, I, I, I think two things. One thing is for, for most editorial cartoonists, um, the news cycle sort of drives what you're doing. And the, the assault on Obamacare that was so central to, to Trump's election um, I think it's something that that's really, really important. It's one of those things that is a major issue for me anyway, as certainly as I get older and as my wife gets older and, you know, all of us need, uh, need health care. Um, I've never understood the, the, the political sides of, of the battle over health care when, when every other industrialized country has universal health care and we can't figure it out in this country. What are the challenges of being a political cartoonist who is m- making commentary on the current administration? Uh, is is anything off limits, Paul Snover, when you are when you are commenting on the the current administration? Um, I I would have to say no. Uh, everything should be open to uh, to commentary. In my viewpoint, just just like Ed's saying, I, I appreciate and love Ed's cartoons. Um, the, it seems to me like the the tighter the noose that a government puts around its people, as far as being able to speak out or or to uh, uh, have commentary, just like Ed was saying on his viewpoints of the uh, of the healthcare situation. I think the tighter the noose gets, the more bold. I mean, look, it brought Ed right back into the into the uh, cartooning fold here um, because of the actions of government. Uh, we tend to react, and sometimes uh, when we give deep thought, I think it even becomes a voice of warning as far as uh, uh, the direction society might be heading or – uh, how we might be able to have an influence on on that in, in the future. When you say the, you know, the, the, the noose, when you say the noose getting tighter, do you mean on free speech? What what do you what does that say about your perception of the current administration? I, <laughs> for for me, I I view them all. I, the one that we have now is really no different than the Obama administration was, as far as uh, free, in my viewpoint. Uh, freedom of speech and freedom of uh, expression. Uh, uh, you know, I experienced things where where uh, people didn't like what I produced, whether it was for somebody else or whether it was some of my own doings. And I think that's just part of being an editorial cartoonist. Uh, you're, you're bound to insult or make somebody unhappy. Uh, it, it just for the fact that it is satirical and editorial. Now, if we shut that down... Um, I, I don't know what'll, what'll happen. I, you could see it. My hero was uh, Antonio Perez back in the Cuba crisis days, uh, when he was speaking out against, um, the, uh, social change that was happening there. 
and I understand the need for for change when when change <laughs> when change is needed. His problem was that he was speaking out against the uh, the government that was killing some of his friends and people, and uh, in turn he had to flee that country. This is a now, fellow a, fo- oh, a fellow cartoonist of his. You're saying. Of yours. Yes. Well, this was back in the 60s. Yeah. So So, uh, Ed Stein, can you contrast just briefly cartooning, if I can make that a verb, cartooning today versus, I don't know, cartooning um, in 08, for instance, before you left the Rocky? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. But I got to respond to something Paul said first, which is that that he doesn't see much of a difference between um, the Obama administration and, and what's happening currently in terms of the in terms of the press, and I, I have never seen in my lifetime an assault on the, on the press like uh, Trump is doing right now, and it's uh, to me it's really alarming, his uh, his attempt to to delegitimize legitimate reporting, is is really frightening, and uh, I, there's a huge difference between Obama's approach to that and and Trump's. And so, what does that feel like as a political cartoonist I to just, you? It, I, I think I have the same reaction Paul does, which is it makes me want to. To attack. You're listening to Colorado Matters, and I'm joined by two political cartoonists. Over on the Metro Denver side of the slope, it's Ed Stein from Denver. He was a longtime cartoonist at the Rocky Mountain News. And on the West Slope, we've got Paul Snover from Loma, Colorado. Uh, Paul, I'd like to go back to a cartoon that was. Um, uh, drawn well before the election, I think it was in 2010, that depicted then-President Barack Obama as a, a terrorist, a gangster, and a, a Mexican bandit, as well as a gay man. Uh, and I think this is another one that you were hired to do, uh, sort of giving imagery to someone's political views. But it, it made me wonder, should a political cartoon offend some people? Is that is that the definition of a successful cartoon in your mind? <laughs> um, well, in my viewpoint, like I said before, uh, I think someone is going to be offended by any uh, editorial cartoon just because of the nature of things. Um, and, you know, in my view, editorial cartoonists are a couple of different things. We're, we're a reflection of... Uh, how society is is maybe moving or where we're at, and it is a um, uh, a cartoonist response to what is happening in the world, and it, it's also opportunity for you know a revolutionary uh, speech. Now that politi- that political poster that was done again, yes, for uh, a friend of mine, and. Uh, Again, he just wanted me to present things uh, the way he saw them. And as far as offending anybody, like I say, I can look at a lot of cartoons and be offended by them. I mean, Charlie Hebdo and and their work, I, I don't go there and visit it because some of the imagery there makes me a little edgy. <laughs> you know, I might not be offended by it, but... Um, a lot of people are. So it goes across the spectrum, I think. Um, his viewpoint on that particular poster, uh, billboard, uh, that was his viewpoint. He wanted to present it that way. And people were definitely offended by it. As a matter of fact, I received uh, hate uh, emails and phone calls 
wanting to burn my house down, you know how they go, I'm going to come over there and burn your house down type of a thing. Well, you know, you can respond in a in a more friendly, cordial way. And, and uh, I think in America, maybe our politics and our government have pushed us towards that, towards hating each other in some way, towards finding, you know, bad things. Uh, but like I say, editorial cartooning, it's hard to be unoffensive, I think. And Ed, Ed Ed, Stein on this, I, I may be wrong here. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> Ed, on this, this question of should a cartoon offend? I, I don't, I never wanted to do a cartoon that offended gratuitously. You know, that wasn't my point. My, my, my point was always to try to make a, try to make a coherent political point. You, you offend people sometimes but because they disagree with you. You've tended um, to steer clear of caricatures, haven't you, Ed? I, I have over, over time. I, that, 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 it came out of a political philosophy that I developed over time, which, you know, when I first started drawing, I really didn't know what I was about. What, you know, was I a shill for, uh, for the liberal Democratic Party? Was I, you know, they reflected my sensibility, but, I, you know, I didn't want to be basically an unpaid lobbyist for, uh, for the Democrats. I didn't think it was my job. My job was to be a journalist. And I, I finally evolved a, a sense uh, th- that the best way to approach the work for me was to concentrate on the effect of political events on average people. And that took me out of that, that realm of partisanship because I could look at what the president was doing, what Congress was doing, what, what, uh, what the political world was doing and run it through the filter of how, how that would affect uh, kind of the, you know, the average middle-class American and, it's almost like bottom-up cartooning, yeah. if you will. And I, I still think that was a, that's a better way to do it than to concentrate on, on what the politicians are doing. Because a lot of what they do is just for show. It's, it's, uh, it's photo ops. It's, uh, it's a chance to get their name, in, name out there. That, that's, to me, that's not what I was interested in. I was really interested in um, standing up for just, just kind of the average American. I would like to wrap up by having each of you tell us about a cartoon you're working on or an issue you know you want to tackle next in a cartoon. Paul Snover? Uh, actually, I'm, I'm working at uh, moving towards more of a, <laughs> I guess you'd call it underground comic cartoon website, uh, just to offer my own personal perspective. I, I agree with Ed on his viewpoint about... Uh, uh, caricatures. I, I've my my work lately has moved more towards the uh, uh, social issues and and the uh, where we're at, where we might be headed, rather than picking on a person hmm. uh, as far as what they may be doing and and uh, like you said, the pol- the political uh, ramifications. So uh, for me, I'm moving more towards a, an online uh, personal. Uh, comic book type thing, uh, just to try to get myself in more of a a positive mood, I guess. Uh, uh, I've I've been pretty negative over the years, so uh, I, I feel that draw towards uh, doing something more positive. Ed Stein, um, I, I guess I would I, I want to respond to something Paul said earlier. Yeah, just which just is, briefly, uh, very briefly. That that um, he sees himself as a revolutionary. I saw myself as a revolutionary too until. Um, until reality set in, um, and I and I realized how how difficult that is within the you know the context of trying to be a journalist. Um, 
as far as what I'm working on, I don't know specifically, but Trump is violating so many of the norms of American governance that, and I think that's the central issue that I worry about. Denver cartoonist Ed Stein and on the Western Slope from Loma, Colorado, cartoonist Paul Snover. You can see some of their recent work at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. Deadheads, fans of the Grateful Dead, will descend on Boulder later this week to see the Dead and Company, made up of several former band members. They'll perform Friday and Saturday at Folsom Field, and while they're here, the Colorado Music Hall of Fame will pay tribute to the Grateful Dead. In their heyday, the band played dozens of concerts in the state, and Red Rocks was one of their favorite venues. Their first show at the amphitheater was July 7, 1978. Paul Epstein, owner of Denver's Twist and Shout Records, was 19 years old then and a fledgling deadhead. He and a friend arrived early and grabbed fifth-row seats. Epstein returned the following night for a show that many consider one of the band's best. Audience tapes of both shows have circulated among fans, but in 2016, high-quality soundboard recordings were released, part of a box set of all the band's shows from July 1978. I spoke with Paul Epstein last year and asked how big a deal it was that the Grateful Dead were playing Red Rocks for the first time. The Grateful Dead had been fairly scarce in our area for a while. We had, there had been a show in 77, but before that, it had been a number of years before they had played, and they had never played at Red Rocks, and Red Rocks itself had been kind of uh, in a fallow period after the Jethro Tull gas, tear gas incident in the early 70s. It got kind of closed down to rock concerts, and it had just, in I think 76, started to come back as a acceptable uh, rock as an acceptable uh, music in Red Rocks. So uh, a lot of the big bands had not been playing Red Rocks or the bands that had really come to ascendance in that middle 70s period had not been playing at Red Rocks. So here we had a confluence of the Grateful Dead on a high right then and Red Rocks being available to rock and roll again. Just very briefly, what happened with Jethro Tull, just just for the context? Well, there were uh, people trying to gate crash and the probably Denver police, it might have been Morrison police, but some police department used tear gas on them, uh, on the f- people gate crashing. And the show um, had to be stopped during Jethro Tull's set. Ian Anderson started coughing. And incidentally, the next time they played at the Coliseum, he walked out and said, anybody see us last time? It was a gas. And the city banned rock concerts basically after the Toll concert for a while, and then slowly opened it up to soft rock. Right. Yes. Yes. In 75 and 6, it was really soft rock. And then they started in 77 and 8 doing real rock concerts again. It hardened after a while. Right. right. Was it it hard to get tickets to that first Grateful Dead show in 78? No. 
No. Okay. No. Was it full? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think I, the Friday night, the 7th, seemed like there was a little bit of room. But the 8th, the Saturday night, which is the one that's getting a lot of attention now, was packed. Um, but it was not hard to get tickets. It wasn't this Grateful Dead mail order. There was no secondary market for selling tickets. There was no internet, folks, at that point. So, you know, it was it was a pretty, you know, you heard it on the radio and you went that that day or the next day and got tickets and it wasn't that hard. What stands out to you from those first two concerts at Red Rocks? You you recorded them, right? I did. Because the, the, the dead, they were really known for allowing fans to do that. Yeah, they, yeah. there was no restriction to it. They This is before the days of a dedicated taping section, which they introduced in the 80s. Huh. Uh, but they were, they looked the other way. Everything, in fact, everything was permissible at Red Rocks and I was there all day I and mean, that that was one of the things that stands out to me was the the kind of laissez-faire attitude of the security and um, the promoters and the band um, they they hung out all day you could smell that they were barbecuing backstage you know at, you know right around dinner time everybody was like mm, I'm hungry you know <laughs> and and they were visible you know walking around backstage and there was just a very laid back you know so that was one thing. The other thing is obviously the magnificent music. It was exceptional um, by subjective or objective standards, I believe. Well, let's listen to one of the newly released tracks. This is from the July 8th show, um, Must Have Been the Roses. And he laid her head down in the roses. She had ribbons, ribbons, ribbons in her long brown hair. The vocals of Jerry Garcia there. It's the Grateful Dead performing at Red Rocks July 8th, 1978. The full concert's just been released for the first time, and we're speaking with Paul Epstein, owner of Twist and Shout Records. He was there that night, and for all 20 of the Dead's performances at Red Rocks. Uh, Bill Kreutzmann, one of the band's two drummers, has said being able to play music at Red Rocks was a privilege, and he called it a mystical setting. Did you sense that the band was reacting to that setting? Yeah, there was the first night on Friday when they first walked out on stage, there was a palpable, um, you know, this was before the days of high fives, but they were doing everything, you know, but they were, you know, slapping each other on the back and like pointing at the rocks in the audience and clearly psyched. And the audience as well was just thrilled and there was just a giddy feeling the whole weekend. We are reflecting on The Grateful Dead in Colorado. The band performed here many times, and Dead and Company will play in Boulder Friday and Saturday. While they're here, the Colorado Music Hall of Fame will pay tribute to the dead. Let's return to my conversation with Paul Epstein, owner of Twist and Shout Records in Denver. He's a deadhead, and he's recalling what's considered one of the band's best performances at Red Rocks Amphitheater in July 1978. What was it about the music in particular that you think was a level of of mastery, I guess? Well, I've spent a good portion of my adult life chasing 
exactly that question, especially with this band. And there are categories of Grateful Dead concerts. And I think people who've listened to them a lot know, can, can recognize clearly when it is something uh, of a different order, a different magnitude. And it's hard to put your finger exactly on what happens. On the eighth show, the Saturday show, the one that's getting all the attention, yeah. there is a, a huge amount of energy. Jerry's vocals are um, – there's a kind of emotional quaver to them that he didn't usually have. And his playing is just amazingly fluid and uh, in command. By the late 70s, he was, <clears throat> you know, the truth be known, he was starting to become addicted to heroin and he was beginning to falter physically or signs were starting to show he was starting to go gray. He was starting to look and get heavier and look a little older. Um, so he didn't play at peak every night. This show is peak. He is playing with mastery and precision and power as people had known him doing from the 60s onward. I was amused to see that um, one of the songs they played July 8th, their encore, in fact, was Werewolves of London by Warren Zevon. I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his head Walking through the streets of Soho in a rain He was looking for the place called me I'm so excited to hear that howl from the dead. What were your what were your impressions when you heard that? Well, I knew the song. You know, I knew Warren Zevon, um, but I. Remember, this was, as I said, before the internet, so I had no idea they were playing it. They had only played it probably less than half a dozen times, and only that summer, and then they played it a couple more times in their entire career. Uh, it was wild and exciting and hilarious, and Jerry's vocals are nearly maniacal by the end. I mean, he's um, he's shrieking it out, and the other band members are kind of shrieking back at him, and it's, it's just one of the most um, uh, overtly fun and overtly uh, expressive Jerry Garcia's I've ever seen. So did you howl back at him? Oh, the whole audience uh-huh. was, and on my audience tape, you can hear... At the end of it, they the band comes down and they're just kind of going ah hoo, and you can hear the audience going ah hoo back at them, and it's just great. Paul Epstein owns Twist and Shout Records in Denver. The Grateful Dead's last concert at Red Rocks was in August 1987. The band simply got too big for the place. On Saturday, at a private fundraiser, the Colorado Music Hall of Fame will pay tribute to the Dead's Colorado legacy. Dead and Company play two shows this weekend at Folsom Field in Boulder. That's Colorado Matters for today. Before we go, a question for you. What was your most memorable Red Rocks concert? We're compiling your stories for a segment in a few weeks. Ring us up with your recollections. The number's at cprnews.org slash connect. This is Colorado Matters.